With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the Commentary Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, April 24th. I am John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, senior editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And joining us today, uh, Big Cheese at the American Enterprise Institute, editor of National Affairs and author of Commentaries May 2020 cover story, A Mirror of the Plague, Yuval, our old friend Yuval Levin. Hi, Yuval. How are you? Hi, John. Great to be with you. Thanks. So um, uh, our uh, political class is uh, is awash in uh, rage and hysteria over Donald Trump musing uh, uh, during the uh, uh, daily briefing yesterday about uh, whether or not there would be a way to somehow um, internalize disinfectants uh, into the human body in a way that would have the effect that disinfectants apparently have on the virus outside the human body, you know, like wiping down a surface, which kills it outright. Um, And uh, you would think uh, that, uh, that he had, you know, basically told everybody to swallow bleach. And so there's a lot of hysteria going on. Meanwhile, I want to I want to report to everybody. I I, I don't want to sort of go into the details of it, but the Washington Free Beacon has a piece today by our old colleague Alana Goodman about uh, the couple in Arizona that ingested the fish tank cleanser based on uh, supposedly based on Trump promoting hydrochloroquine uh, a month ago. And um, uh, if you read between, not that deeply between the lines. Uh, this is a more deeply gothic story than we uh, understood at first, and that um, uh, this is maybe more like a, an episode of Columbo or or um, or you know a novel by Jonathan Kellerman than it is uh, what we were led to believe it was in the first place. So I just wanted to say that look up Alana Goodman's piece in the Washington Free Beacon for some interesting reading. Uh, on the on the you know Trump is killing people by recommending uh, bad medical cures. Can I can I add, add to the the anxiety in the press here? That's sort of a story that dovetails with it. So uh, Joe Biden yesterday on the stump said, you know, maybe we should all sort of freak out about the prospect of the president unilaterally trying to amend the Constitution, I guess, or like uh, postpone the election. And there's no anxiety over this. It's taken as a purely rational statement, as though people, I think, prefer their anxieties to the fact of the matter. I mean, the Constitution says the president's term ends when it ends. And statute is the responsibility of Congress. And the fact that, you know, people just really want to have that anxiety and suggest that what the president says has this 
weight and power that transcends statute um, is, is suggestive, A, of the notion that everybody's going to go out and inject themselves intravenously with bleach because the president says as much. It's a weird... It's a weird effort to rob people of agency and look down on their capacity for rational thought, and I don't okay. really get it. Okay, Into, but can, I, yeah. can I just say one thing about it? I mean, as someone who has relentlessly uh, uh, mocked and ridiculed celebrities who offer, you know, coffee colonics and this sort of like crazy stuff like you see on Gwyneth Paltrow's Goop website— there is there is room for criticizing the kind of flippant offhand remark about, you know, ingesting Lysol or Clorox or even the hint of it um, that Trump made, because there are people who, unfortunately, we know this from looking at New Age Medicine, the world's greatest oxymoron, um, that people will buy a cure-all, especially when they feel anxious about their health. So I do think it was irresponsible of him. It certainly has been blown oh. out of proportion. But it's, it's just it's the wrong message at the wrong time. Well, I don't want to. Um, I don't want to defend it. And there's a classic thing, which is, you know, just as people are taught not to answer journalists' uh, questions, but to answer the questions they wish journalists were asking them if you're in a sort of PR crisis, um, presidents shouldn't be musing in conversation openly at a mic in front of the American people with their, you know, experts about whether or not could there be a way you could somehow put a ultraviolet light inside somebody's body to, uh, to, to cure them. Um, I don't care whether he asks the question, not at a camera, you know, I mean, I, there's no such thing. There is the theory that there is no such thing as a dumb question and you can ask it, then get the answer and move on. It's that, uh, we are living at a time in which this is happening sort of like in full public view and that is new and it is not reassuring, obviously. Um, Although you could make to say the, the least, <laughs> but you could make the case that the idea—I I, I, mean—the idea that uh, Trump is open to unconventional ways of handling problems should not be seen as the worst thing in the world. It's just that he shouldn't be doing it in public. Well, well I mean, I'm, I'm, ingesting floor wax is always a bad idea. Yeah, and, and like you can imagine him having these musings while he's lying in a tanning bed, right? Yes. I mean, this is not a normal kind of yes. presidential you know, thought. Yuval, as the person here who has actually worked on healthcare issues <laughs> in a White House in relatively close proximity to a president, uh, give us your um, because you uh, you were on the uh, uh, stem cell, uh, you worked on the, uh, various issues during the, uh, George W. Bush administration. Right, so I, just, uh, I, I worked on a bioethics commission in Bush's first term, but I was the health staffer in the Bush White House in the second term and worked on a variety, I mean, including pandemic preparedness and other things. But, uh, and I would say President Bush never asked us if it would be a good idea to ingest Lysol. That's true. Maybe he wondered himself, uh, you know, it's obviously crazy what Trump is doing here, but I also think there's just a way that people reach for comfortable things and being appalled by Donald Trump is very comfortable and people would rather do that than deal with the fact that, you know, we're going to cross the 50,000 deaths threshold today uh, and we're dealing with a, a terrible actual crisis that isn't about just uh, being amazed at how stupid someone is. And so we resort to this kind of thing. Obviously, Trump doesn't behave the way a president should behave in front of the public in a crisis. That's clear enough. But, uh, you know, the, the amount of attention that statement is getting is pretty ridiculous, given what else is going on. 
So this is really this is his version of a fireside chat. This is this is how he, he brings the nation together. He comforts them every evening by giving them fodder to to be outraged by. Well, I mean, some 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 portion of the nation, obviously. I'm I'm more um, uh, interested in the. Uh, the you, you've all said we're about to pass fifty thousand. I think something happened on the right three or four weeks ago that needs to be revised. And I hinted about this a couple days ago, which is that when the uh, Imperial College study and the University of Washington projections, when it became clear that their uh, outermost and most extreme elements were wildly um, exaggerated in terms of the potential death toll, somehow in all of our heads, we started settling into the notion that we were going to see a death toll around 60,000. And while that was terrible and awful and gruesome and awful and no one could say any better, it was so much better than we had feared that, um, you know, it, it was time to have serious thoughts about how to reopen and all of that. I think it's pretty clear that that 60,000 number is a wild understatement of what the death toll is 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 going to be. I mean, we we have seen a doubling of the number of deaths in the last week. And even if that pace hopefully slackens, you know, we're on, we're on track to 100,000 um uh deaths from this virus alone. And a lot of people who don't want who who seem Intent, and I'm somebody who believes that we can't stay closed as long as other people think we can stay closed. But uh, this, there is this hunger to imagine that it's not as bad as it is, and I, I just don't think that that is going to be a way to have a serious conversation about the risk, uh, you know, the sort of the relative uh, risks in staying closed and what health consequences that will have aside from the virus, including, you know, suicide and uh, health complications for people who can't get health care because all the health care is being reserved for virus patients and all of that. Uh, we need to look at this uh, cool, cool-eyed. I think there's, a, there's an irony in the fact that we the, the time to start thinking about the next phase is when you reach the peak, which is probably roughly where we are. But that means we're at the peak. So uh, just about 20,000 people have died in the last week in the United States from this from this virus. And we've spent most of that week talking about whether and how to start releasing people from the constraints they're under. I think it's appropriate to be talking about that, but it would make sense to not put this virus in the past tense. It is very much in the present tense. This is when it is at its worst. We don't know what number we're going to reach here, but... You know, yesterday was the the third highest fatality in one day that we've seen so far in this crisis. 3,200 Americans died yesterday from this. And our public conversation doesn't seem to be taking that in in the way that it ought to at the moment. I mean, here in New York City, you know, we, we have now gotten accustomed to the notion that a death toll under 500 or under 400 is really good. But, you know, if we have a death toll between 300 and 400 that lasts two more weeks, let's just say, that's another 5,000 people dead in this city alone where there are already 15,000 people dead. Um, and uh, maybe there is in people's heads this idea that this is all happening 
elsewhere, and maybe all of the social distancing really has done a fantastic job of intervening in the in the uh, pandemic quality of the pandemic. But we don't really know, A, we don't really know that yet. And B, um, you know, it's not like uh, if 100,000 people die in places where you don't live, that that doesn't have a massive um, uh, psychic consequences on the country apart from the horrors of living in this, you know, enforced, uh, you know, medical coma. Well, allow me to submit an idea that I'm not necessarily 100% attached to, but it's worth a thought. Um, that society and the conversation that we're seeing from our uh, elected officials and bureaucratic officials around this issue is taking it seriously, but in a rather bloodless way that doesn't satisfy the emotional triggers that we're accustomed to talking about when we talk about things like mass death. Um, there is a certain level of mortality with which we have to become accustomed to in this crisis, because if we are treating it like, as we talked about in the other podcast, a total war in which value targets and civilians are vulnerable and that we are a society mobilizing to address that threat and to sustain some damage, that we talk about it as though it's a lagging indicator. We talk about it as though we've plateaued, not necessarily reached a peak or peaked rather, but have plateaued and will eventually begin to see a decline. We talk about it like a statistician and not as a human being. Um, and we become much more accustomed in society to having emotionally charged discussions around political issues. And we are talking about this much more uh, dispassionately in a way that's unnerving, but is nevertheless serious. Well, I wrote a column this week for the for the New York Post in which I uh, likened uh, the 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 virus and its effect to a um, uh, a, a really brilliant uh, science fiction novel by the Chinese, oddly enough, the Chinese writer Shijin Lu called The Three-Body Problem, which posits that there is a planet called Trisolaris that has an incredibly unstable atmosphere. And the, in order to survive the this three-sun atmosphere where the suddenly the temperature of the surface of the planet will go to 250 or 300 degrees... Um, the people have to have have evolved to being able to dehydrate their bodies and basically go into hibernation dormant as as basically as skins on the ground and then when the when the when things change they can be rehydrated and come back to life and that this is what where we are with this that we have somehow we're not in a medical coma we have dehydrated our economy and ourselves living in this kind of isolation that we'll we'll get to in talking about Yuval's great piece of the mirror of the plague um uh and that um we cannot exist like this for very long and that we have to have conversations about about reopening and how this is going to work and that uh there is a, a a crew of people who act as though even raising the issue of having the conversation is an act of mass murder and the letters that I got in response to the column proved the column right. That is to say, there's all these people saying, 
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you Lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Didn't you have a colleague at the New York Post who died of the virus? Like, or have you sent this piece to his wife? You know, his widow? How does she feel about it? You know? I well, hope, I, uh, you know, like that. That kind of thing. Well, and there's also, I've seen among the sort of like Pointner media critic types, already a movement um, encouraging uh, newsrooms not to give the protesters too much air, right? To say, if you focus too much on these people protesting and arguing for the economy to be reopened, you're going to give the rest of the population the sense that this is a large movement, that people actually want this. And we know from polls that people don't want this. Yet. And we've talked about the polls. I mean, most Americans still are uh, much more comfortable staying in lockdown for now. But, you know, as Yuval's piece points out, and, and as you say, John, we need to start having these conversations um, to make plans for the next month and two months and six months. And I think that there is a, uh, and we've talked about this in, on, on other podcasts, there's a kind of condescending attitude that I think our, our elite media in particular has about the American uh, people's ability to make risk calculations for themselves and not covering protests is one of those ways that the sort of elite institutional gatekeepers can say, you know, if we show people that there are others out there who are frustrated like they might be, then we could have chaos on our hands. We've got that there's a kind of controlling aspect to that that I find highly condescending. We've seen some very problematic images from Georgia this morning of hair salons open with three people in them who are 18 feet apart getting the haircuts that they so desperately need because they really botched the one they gave themselves at home. Um, <laughs> this is the sort of thing that I think really frustrates people who have a perverse desire to see this backfire. Right. Well, there is that whole thing about, you know, now now there is evidence that, you know, the virus uh, does not transmit well outdoors. I mean, evidence. I mean, who the hell knows what the evidence really is? But... So according to this one study in China, there were two cases out of 312 that seem to be have been transmitted in the open air, which suggests that doing things like closing beaches is crazy, right? It, uh, it's good to be out in the open air. You can't really get it. If, if this is 
supported by other data. We don't have time maybe to gather this data, but like, you know, the summer is coming. It would be better for people to be outside than inside uh, in terms of transmission. And yet, as we've talked about before, there is a kind of um, egalitarian where solidarity movement, um, and Yuval talks about solidarity as a key factor in crises, which is like, well, if I can't go outside, you can't go outside. I'm living, I live in the middle of Manhattan, so I can't go outside. You live, you know, in uh, Destin, Florida. You can't go outside either. How about that, buddy? You know, I don't care that you live a mile from your nearest neighbor. You know, you got to stay inside. But there's and, also, yeah. you know, there's also a sort of a division here in how that's looked at because while uh, people were populating the beaches in Florida and everyone was outraged and and calling them idiots, at the very same time, um, things like that were happening on beautiful days in New York, I, in Central Park in particular. I witnessed it, and it, it doesn't garner the the same outrage. There there are designated targets here um, that when they do things, it's dumb, right? Um, and when when others do them, it's 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 the beginning of well, maybe we need sunlight and uh, out to be outside in order to uh, to boost our immune systems anyway. I think there's also a, there's a deeper problem for our democracy here, which is that there, there's no way forward that's going to involve doing what people want. These polls that say people don't want to go back, uh, I'm sure there's a lot of truth to them, but holding on like this is not sustainable. I mean, it is just holding on. It's like our country's holding its breath, and it's necessary for a time. But we can't actually have the government substitute for our economy in the, in the medium term, right? That's just not going to work. We have to be talking about going back. And this, the simple fact that most people say they'd rather not at the moment isn't actually as important as it seems to be. The, the, what what right. we should be requiring of our politicians now is not that they do what we all want, but that they help us find a way to balance safety with the, the necessity of getting our economy moving so that we don't have the worst economic disaster in our history. Right. And that's going to be hard, and it's going to involve doing a lot of things that nobody wants to do. Right. Well, you know, uh, if you do sort of like a total back-of-the-envelope calculation, so we're at about, if you add in the new money for the um, uh, replenishment of the Paycheck Protection Act, um, we're at about six overall in the relief package between direct federal spending and subvention and fed liquidity we're at about 6.5 trillion dollars spent authorized committed whatever since what in the last three weeks or four weeks something like that that is about a third of the gdp of the country which is like 22 trillion so that's three months um uh there isn't any more money. I mean, I, I mean, I, I guess we'll, you know, we can coin, we can mint the trillion dollar coin and inflate away whatever it is that we're handing out or, you know, sort of like turn ourselves, ha having gone from, from the world of, uh, of the three body problem novel to, uh, you know, to Weimar Germany, we can end up, you know, having a dollar worth a trillion dollars. Um, to well, me, Yuval we, can probably correct this, but the MMT theory is that you inflate the currency to hex. That's but the then modern, you, but then yeah, mod, that's the modern monetary the theory. Yeah, that's this then, uh, leftist uh, 
anti-monetary theory. Right. So you can pay for anything because money's a social construct and you mint whatever you want. But then the second part of that is you have to have a massive confiscatory tax regime to take all this money out of the economy so that money's still worth something. Yeah, but I mean, it counts on... We never talk about that part. That, no, it's impossible. I mean, we're, we're trying it out now. And what we're going to find is, the, I think, the first meaningful inflation we've seen in America since the early 1980s. And very few Americans live with a strong memory of what that involves. But we're... There's nowhere to put money right now, and there's a lot of money being flooded into the economy. I mean, the result of that is pretty straightforward, and Maybe we're not like Well, so what happened in the in after the financial meltdown in two, 2008 was that people retreating to their priors and classic economic theory said, if we do what we're doing here with stimulus and 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 the and the quantitative easing, the four. The four tranches of quantitative easing, we are going to create massive inflation because that's what happened the last time we liberalized. But in fact, the hole was so deep, as it turned out, the liquidity crisis on the planet was so huge. And we had basically been living on this kind of on these IOUs for so long that the QE model did not, in fact, inflate, did not end up having an inflationary effect. But we came into this. With full employment and an and a and an economy that wasn't exploding but was certainly growing at a little better than 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 two percent, and and then it sort of stops and then we just print money and throw money at it and uh, and we are going to be in a lot of trouble aside from the fact that the government is going to go broke uh, and years before we all understood the government was probably going to go broke over entitlements. Uh, this has to get going because there's not going to be any money for anything. I mean, that's the joke. Joe Biden can become president in January of 2021, and he is going to have to preside over massive tax increases and cut and absolute cuts in federal spending if this doesn't end soon and there isn't a V-shaped recovery. And there may not be a V-shaped recovery. There may be nothing to be done about that. But so- yeah. So, so isn't this just to loop back to what we were just talking about? The idea that you know leaders are mistakenly, or we're we're mistakenly sort of thinking about this as if it's in the past. Is it the truth that we cannot even we can't wait until it's in the past anyway? That 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 would be too late. So until the virus is in the past anyway, that we that we that we that we simply have to sort of at some point we're going to have to act as if it's in the past in order to to. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it makes what's... sense to hold out as we have because we've avoided a, a terrible overwhelming of our health system. We have, in fact, avoided Italy's fate. We're not going to have the problem they had short of a massive second wave in the fall or something else. Our health system has held out much better, really, than any of the European health systems except Germany. And that has had to do, you would think, although it's hard to find evidence that proves it, uh, with the kind of social distancing we've had. But that's not a strategy that can sustain us until this is in the past. I mean, that's just, there's no way. We don't even know how long it would take for meaningful treatments, let alone a vaccine. And this just cannot be sustained, both for the government spending reasons and just because people are holding out, right? They're not, many Americans are living now without paychecks. Property owners are not getting rent and mortgage payments. People aren't paying taxes. We just, this is necessarily temporary. There's no way around that. 
Right, but and, and the other thing is, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, because you are a student of, the, you know, you are like one of the early people involved in in thinking through pandemics. But as I read this as a total layman, uh, the idea that there will be a recurrence in the fall, <clears throat> the idea that that will be prevented by social distancing in April, is a misunderstanding. I mean, I suppose if you can somehow kill the virus off on the North American continent so that nobody has it by August at all, then you can somehow impede its recurrence in September and October when the weather turns bad. But that's a fantasy. It won't happen, number one. And number two, like, uh, aside from that, it may not be able to happen anyway because of the etiology of the virus. And so it'll happen... We have to start up in order to refill the larders a little bit in case there's a second recurrence. And, I think that's and, right. And and the, the, the only real game changer in the near term would be treatments that make the, the worst cases of this much less bad. That would really change the way we live with this virus. But otherwise, it, it's it's gone way beyond the point where we can hope to end it uh, right. in the course of this spring and summer, surely. Yeah, I mean, you know, Abe and I were talking, or we were talking about this last night um, in relation to these stories about Sweden and these uh, these uh, warring stories about Sweden, right? Like one story is, you know, Sweden thought it had, you know, Sweden was following a model and you know what? It didn't work. Ha ha. They're getting sick, like just like the rest of us. It's kind of weird, happy, uh, you know, they're now they're getting theirs. And then the Swedish health minister saying, no, 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 we're very close to herd immunity in Stockholm. And so if we hit herd immunity, then, you know, then then we will have done what we what we set out to do. Uh, And yes, the death toll is higher than it was than it is in the other Scandinavian countries. But, you know, it's not what it's like elsewhere. Um, And so the whole question was, well, if they can achieve herd immunity, why, why can't we? And then I sort of looked on did one of those, you know, ridiculous 30-second Google things, right? So how many households in the United States are multi-generational? Um, and we always hear that no one in America lives with their grandparents, you know, no one lives in multi-generational households, and this is why we're bowling alone, and, you know, why we have, so, you know, all of that. And it turns out 20% of Americans live in multi-generational households. How you can isolate old people in a country in which 60 million people live together in homes, I don't, you can't. So this notion that you can come up with a herd immunity approach in the United States that will place directly place in danger the people over the age of 60 or 65 living in these multi-generational homes seems to me to be uh, delusional. Because where where are you going to first of all where are you going to take them where are they going to go is they going to go in the basement, and you like you have your grandparents living in the basement and they're not allowed to come up from the where's the shower what if you're in a house with one bathroom where's the shower where's the toilet it doesn't it doesn't make logical sense to follow that approach so at some point uh, um, you know when you look at all of these uh, alternative options you are put in a position where you have to start talking bloodlessly about what it is that we are willing to suffer. And if the, if the logic, the political logic of the present moment is any death is a, is a tragedy. 
uh, going forward, then we are looking at an extinction level event for our society and our economy. Question is how we get out of that, and that's where I think we can turn to Yuval's Yuval's piece, um, which was written a couple weeks ago, and so it doesn't, uh, you know, it 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 was sort of not at the beginning, but at the end of the beginning of the of of the of the pl- of the plague hitting us, and raises some uh, philosophical questions about what the moral, psychological, and sociological effect of the of the virus is having on us and is going to okay round two name something that's not boring a laundry oh a book club computer solitaire huh ah oh, sorry we were looking for chumba casino that's right chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino style games join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes so if you could talk a little about this whole question of the paradox of the um, solidarity that we are being asked to show here, which is a radical difference from all solidarity that societies are asked to show in times of crisis. Yeah, I mean, the, the piece tries to think a little bit about whether the, the mobilization we're going through might actually answer some of the social problems we've been living with for decades where we've worried about society coming apart and uh, people becoming isolated and alienated. Oftentimes national emergencies bring us out of those kinds of crises by uniting us and mobilizing us together. And there's an element of that here, but of course the, the particular mobilization we're living through now takes the form of isolation. and it's very hard for that to be a, a unifying force where what we're doing for one another in a sense is keeping apart and staying apart and so the the notion that this kind of uh, moral equivalent of war um, that can unify us around responding to the virus will actually address those problems we had doesn't seem plausible and beyond that pandemics in general epidemics in general tend to tend to break societies apart much more than they unite them. They turn people fearful of one another. Uh, the, the, the examples of that throughout history are terrifying. We're doing a lot better than a lot of those societies have done so far. And ultimately, I, I think where there is some reason for hope is that we might come out of this with a little more of an appreciation for some of the things we've taken for granted in thinking about our society, um, for some of the ways that we do hang together, for some of the ways that some of the questions and debates that divide us are unserious and silly. And if we, if, if we take our basic sociality for granted a little less, we might be in a better place to appreciate what really works well in America and not just to complain about what doesn't. But that's a, a narrow silver lining in what I think is largely a, a dark cloud here. And we shouldn't imagine that we come out of this a stronger society by default. I actually, it's funny that, that you kind of ended on a, on a down, down note there, but reading Yuval's piece cheered me up, in fact, because I felt like it identified. Far as low these days, right? <laughs> right. Maybe. But it really, it, what it struck in me was a sort of optimism about not the present moment, which I think is kind of deeply depressing for a lot of us, but uh, six months to a year from now, where we will have a better sense of what we should be doing 
And the things we should be doing are not merely the things we're doing now in isolation. I think that that's going to be very important just as a sort of cultural mind shift for people. But I was also struck by the reminder, because you touch on some of the history of previous um, pandemics, is even the way we talk about it, right? Plague was a general all-purpose term for most of human history because we didn't have a lot of scientific knowledge about what was happening when, when they occurred. Now we talk about pandemics, we talk about the COVID-19 virus. I mean, we have very specific scientific knowledge, but we still are experiencing what everyone who's lived through a plague has experienced, right? This this kind of dislocation, this this fear, the anxiety. So in some ways, it's... it's um, the, the scientific precision and and technological sophistication we have now hasn't actually spoken to those other deeply human needs, which everyone who, you know, every generation that's ever lived through a plague has, has experienced. Yeah, it's one of the strange facets of this, that our basic response has actually been what they did in Florence in the 14th century, which is just stay apart from one another. For all the science that we have, and that science will end this ultimately. I mean, I think it will succeed. There will be treatments. There will be vaccines. But what we're living through in this first wave of things is what people have lived through in dealing with vaccines forever. Uh, that that really is what we have at hand to begin with. So our experience isn't that different. I mean, you know, uh, the 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 history of of uh, of the of kind of a natural crises. Uh, in, say, uh, Western European history or European history uh, gives us reason for uh, fear, I think, in a different way. I mean, I'm thinking about how it's not a plague, but um, the uh, Lisbon earthquake, uh, which was, I think, 1666, uh, much of what followed the Lisbon earthquake uh, if uh, if Sarabamari were on the show, we could we could go into this in in, in great depth. But um, there was a gigantic spiritual crisis in Europe after the Lisbon earthquake because it was the first time there was a sort of in two hundred since the Black Death that there was like a mass death experience. This entire city leveled and hundreds of thousands of people dead. And uh, the religious worldview of the, at that moment could not cope with you know. God allowing this to happen, and there was a kind of wave of atheism and atheist philosophy that, if you you know, not to be too ridiculously vulgar about it, but that you know, in part, may have culminated in the French Revolution and Robespierre and the Jacobins, and and certainly the French philosophs that preceded them, who be and you know, this is it, this is plays a major is a major thing in Candide and Voltaire's thinking. Um, uh, and all of that. And so, you know, uh, moments like this, uh, who knows what kind of social, emotional dislocation they can have on this notion that we are a hardy society, we're, a, you know, we're tough, we're, you know, we're, we're resilient, we're going to get through this, because we don't know how we're going to get through it. And people may look at this and say, one thing that we haven't even really dealt with, which is, it's been 20, the, the 21st century is now, you know, 20 years old. We've had 9-11 and the financial meltdown and this in these like eight to 10 year intervals. How much more can we take? I mean, the beginning of the 20th century had World War One, the Great Depression and World War Two in, in, you know, in, in succession. And Europe did not, Europe came out the other end not being Europe anymore. 
not being the leading edge of world civilization anymore. That was the end of Europe. Now, I don't know. But then there's this odd phenomenon in which you had some pretty major pandemics over the course of the 20th century, some of which were just lost to history. And we talk a lot about some of them now because they're relevant. But the ones in 1957 and 1968 didn't register above the geopolitical tumult and maybe just the afterglow of World War II for 1957. But, um, you know, for for a lot of when I when we started reading about this sort of thing, like the uh, 1918 plague, it was referred to as something that had been largely forgotten by history because it was subsumed by the other events, 1918. Um, so pandemics have this have a different nature to them as far as being geopolitically uh, seismic events. I mean, they have a, 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 an effect, but it's sort of sub rosa and it, and it works over the course of a generation. It's not like a, it's not like an earthquake. It's not like a war. There's a, there's a great book about 1918 by John Barry called the great pandemic where he says that it was an enormously transformative event, but it's, it doesn't show up in history because people just weren't proud of what they did and how their country got through it. And nobody wanted to talk about it. It changed everybody's life all over the West and and all over the world, but it just wasn't part of the story that any country wanted to tell about itself. And it's part of the reason that uh, we don't have a we don't have an awareness of it in our history. I, I you know it's very very hard to know obviously what kind of uh, what kind of aftershocks this will have. But where I have a little hope is that it might liberate us from the sheer frivolity of the of the last few years in our politics. I have that hope too, but I have been chastised for it. Yeah, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> because what, because what it is a comfort zone to retreat into to talk about identity, for example, and that sort of thing. That, those are the good times, and to do that now is sort of a comfort blanket. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, there. I think there is a lot to this notion that really we spent three weeks talking about Colin Kaepernick. I mean, really. Yeah, but you know, I mean, there, was, there was some of this before 9-11, you'll remember, and, and it was a different kind of frivolity that was ended. You know, there was a kind of, what were we talking about in the summer before, before 9-11? Do everybody remember? Chandra Levy and Sharks and Lizzie Grubman. Lizzie Grumman, the publicist, driving uh, her car into a crowd in Southampton. And, and if Chandra, you were my age, Aaliyah. Well, that, that's right, the death of Aaliyah, right. And so... Um, I mean, I remember I've told the story before that, um, that, uh, three weeks before nine 11, uh, and I was a columnist at the New York post and I went to the editor and I said, you know, uh, if the, if the job of theater critic comes up, um, <laughs> you want to make a change there, I would really be very interested in take, cause I can't write about the, I I'm running out of things to write about. Like the only thing that happened in politics in the eight months before 9-11 was the passage of the No Child Left Behind Act. You know, it's like, what on earth am I supposed to write about here? I'm going crazy. This is the most boring thing ever, right? Okay, and so, but, yeah. but like a secondary spike in a pandemic, if you then fast forward 10 years, we a lot of the kind of identity politics issues that some of us remember from the 90s and were told as conservatives we were overreacting to because they were just confined to campus has spread society wide. So they it does come back. Like the stuff that seems frivolous now has, I think, a hundred percent chance of returning. I mean, we're seeing some of it return already pretty quickly. So yeah. I would hesitate to think that we're gonna be just like I when people declared irony was dead after 9-11, that lasted six months. Also, but I mean, if all we I'm saying to... it's a different all I'm saying is it's a different kind of frivolity. Like certain types of frivolities 
were retired after 9-11 to be replaced by other types of frivolity. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) I I just don't know if we are capable of, and I don't want to sink into some kind of false nostalgia for generations past, but I don't know if we are capable of talking about the kind of mortality rate that we will have to endure in order to restart society, lest we sink into a 20-year depression, um, to unendurable inevitabilities that need to be mitigated and balanced against one another. I mean, that's a pretty dark conversation, and I don't think we're having it because we're incapable of having it right now. But when will we be? I I would say I think we're just going to stumble into that without talking about it. I I don't think we're going to get to a place where we're serious about that kind of trade-off in our politics. But I do think that we're going to restart things, and we're going to do it in a way that sets off that trade-off and it's just going to feel like a bunch of stumbling, um, like we're, we're, we're making mistakes, trying to back off them, fixing this, fixing that. And we'll get to a place where that balance is a little bit more sustainable. But I agree with you. We're not go- it's not going to be a serious debate in the, in the 2020 election. Uh, I, I, it's just very hard to imagine our democracy getting to that point. Right? Hence, hence why, hence why, you know, if it's going to feel like a bunch of stumbling and if it's going to be as dark as, as Noah suggests, and, and, it, and it is... Hence why no country wants to talk about how they handle the plague. Well, but I will say this, that uh, the, the tenor of the stories can shift. For example, uh, 15 stories about people committing suicide. Because I, I'm, just, I, I'm sorry to be grim about this, but stories about people uh, experiencing deaths of despair or going through deaths of despair because of the economic dislocation. In other words, the story it can't just be every day that, you know, an 80-year-old man uh, died of complications of the virus. Terrible though that is, there's a sameness to that. And we that's something that we can start in hearing. The large numbers we can't, the, the smaller numbers we can. Well, and, the, and that the, there the, will be a, yeah. I was going to say, and, and the bizarre alternative stories that you see that aren't that, which are basically like how we should all be working on our beach bodies while, you know, and using carpe diem while we're in isolation and doing all these sort of, uh, self-improvement things, which have a, it has another bizarre and surreal impact if this continues for much longer. I mean, this this right. the, the can-do, it's written in terms of right. like a can-do spirit, but you've seen these stories, yeah. right? So you'll read about the deaths and then you read about how you're supposed to be doing something productive while you're in lockdown. And, and it's I don't think most people are able to sustain that those polar uh, differences. Well, I mean, I, you know, we started this the podcast talking about the obsession over Trump's, you know, wacky musings. But that focus is also it is it is, a, it is a brand of frivolity that we are clinging to because there are nine billion more important things that happen every day that, that, that we that we avoid. Well, I don't about. know. I, 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 I wish that I could agree with you about that. But I mean, he is the president of the United States. You know, if he were Oprah or if he were Steve Harvey or something like that, and for some reason we were paying attention or he were, you know, Trevor Noah, you know, people are just like saying, Oh, did you hear what, did you see what Trevor Noah said? I mean, that's crazy. That's one thing. Um, as I say, it's, it's, it's the indiscipline of having these conversations in public rather than in private. And if you can believe some of the reporting over the last couple of days. Part of this is that is that um, the president is not actually having meetings in private with the uh, with the pandemic task force. He gets notes from their meetings. He reads them. He writes stuff on cards. He goes out to the thing, and the first time he's talking to 
Burks and Fauci and stuff is there on the podium in the press, in the briefing room. And so a thought occurs to him and he asks them a question. If he met for, with them for 20 minutes before the briefing, uh, maybe, and they said, look, we're going to talk about how disinfectants are really good. And he's like, you know what? I have this idea. Like, could, is there some way we can adapt that uh, to human bodies? And they're like, no. And then he's I, like, okay. I totally agree with you up to a point. But then we, then you have, you know, um, journalists scrambling on Twitter to show that isopropyl alcohol costs thousands of dollars in a, in a, in a giant drum <laughs> right. just, just for the sake of, of, of pursuing the, the, the frivolous attack. There is a word that was coined, I guess, who knows, in the zeitgeist, but Merriam-Webster has added it to the dictionary to define, which has a defining element to 2020, and they, it, is, uh, it is either doom surfing or doom scrolling. Which is essentially a satisfying process by which the individual uh, sifts through bad news and experiences saddening, disheartening, depressing emotions, and is yet uh, fulfilled by those. Well, it's the soap. It's 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 turning life into soap opera. If you're if you ever watch daytime soap operas or nighttime soap operas, but daytime soap operas being the more vulgar version of this. Um, that's what they're, it's, you know, as somebody says in, uh, in the great comic movie about soap opera, soap dish, you know, of, of, of a character she is, and will always be the queen of misery. Like you yeah. want to follow someone just having terrible things happen to them all the time, because at least that's not you or so, some, well, some it's not version that this, of that. It's not that, they, I mean, it's sort of hypothetically bad. Like people will say, I don't know why anybody's following the NFL draft. No one's ever playing professional sports again. Yeah. And it's like. There's a perverse satisfaction that they derive from that, and then get a lot of positive yeah. feedback from that sort of thing. It's it's enjoyable in a way, and I well, just I, find it crushing. Yeah. Well, I I poke fun at our friend Jonathan Last, uh, Jonathan Last of the of the Bulwark and the Subbeacon podcast, who's on here because uh, he you know he he almost with with almost glee he's like, this is the last time anyone is going to be in a movie theater. The last movie you saw before April is the last movie you will ever see in a movie theater. And as he says it, you can sort of see a smile curling up <laughs> on, on, on his lips because it has that, you know, Joker in the Dark Knight Rises or whatever, you know, thing where it's like, you know, some you sort of there is some interesting aspect of if you have a pessimistic worldview, seeing your pessimistic worldview get some purchase. I mean, that's what. People liked Oswald Spengler for much of the 20th century for that that very reason. It's a deep human impulse. But it's also, and I'm not accusing Jonathan of this, but in some, it is also a way of justifying your opting out of things, right? It's it's it, it's a way of giving up. It's a way it's a way of not being not being invested. Right. Well, but as I say, it, I think yeah, there's an unreality to it that that right. allows you to focus on a piece of bad news without seeing that that would have to be part of a much larger story of bad news where well and the bad yeah and heading into the worst economic crisis since the great depression which we may well be then yeah there's no more movie theaters but there's a lot more to be said about that that isn't quite yeah. as to think about well you know i have these conversations with friends of mine our kids go to the same you know schools and uh, and so my kids go to private schools in, in New York City and there's these conversations about you know what happens if school doesn't reopen and all you know what happens if it's August and they're not going to re- – and I'm like, you know, to be honest, if school isn't going to reopen in September, 
we are going to be in such a world of hurt that though it may seem astounding to say that school's not opening in September isn't the worst problem that we will have, it really isn't going to be the worst problem that we will have. That would that would that would re- that would represent six months of lockdown. And we, I mean, again, like I, I have no idea how we reopen or what that means or anything like that. What I do know is that we will be, we will not, uh, what this country was, it will not be at that point and how it rebuilds itself is not clear. So, um, you know, there is that aspect of catastrophism where when you think this through as coldly as you it's like it is not um uh uh strength and humanity to say that we just need to do this until the until the virus goes away uh it may be that you have to look at this in very stark terms for the very purpose of saving the country i mean if we had to save the country to begin with from two million deaths Good, we did that. Now we have to save the country from 10 million deaths of despair <laughs> or well, something. But, like that. but that's where I see the optimism. And again, in Yuval's piece, I finished it and I was like, I feel so much better because that has, there's more control we can exercise both as individuals and as communities. Um, to solve that problem, right? We know how to do that. We do. We've been doing it. Um, it's going to be a great challenge um, and kind of digging ourselves out of the trench that we had to put ourselves in protectively for the last few months is going to be a challenge and there will be casualties along the way. But I just feel like that's something we've we know as a country how to do if we have the right attitude about it. And I'm sure this sounds Pollyanna-ish to some people, but I feel like, especially at the community level, that's what to watch for in the next few months, to watch if a state, so Georgia reopens, right? How many places do try to figure out a way to safely uh, and gradually get their businesses back up and running? Does it work? Do they try something new? Do they innovate? How do they do that? Those are the stories I hope that we will be following and that will give us some uh, reason for optimism. I think there will be that kind of creativity all over the place. And, and more than that, it seems to me that this, this period marks the end of the phase of politics that the Trump era was bringing to an end, right? Trumpism has not been a beginning but an end, an end of the political order of, the, of post-Cold War America. And what follows this will be dramatically different. Now, I can hope that it will be better. I do hope that. And I think you always want to bet on America and not against it. But whether it's better or worse, we're entering a different phase of our politics after this. And the moment we're living through now is going to be understood, I think, by historians as a turning point, a, right. a, a real turning point in American life. I mean, part, I think, to, to sort of start uh, to bring this to a close, part of that has to do with the fact that um, uh, we, we, we play this, um, you know, uh, heroes and villains game or, you know, we uh, look for a villain to demonize on either side and people that we hate and all of that. And um, there is going to be a real problem here with demonizing the people who want to reopen for, for this reason, which is they're all at risk, too. I mean, if you run a hair salon, you're at risk of getting coronavirus from somebody who comes in and 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 uh, and then you could give the corona to somebody else. They no one is without 
uh, exposure here. So that uh, this notion that you can say, you know, and we've we, we've we've seen this in the last couple of weeks. It's like, oh, it's evil. Ruth's Chris's Steakhouse is evil because it took money from the Paycheck Protection Fund. Uh, why should they get twenty million dollars? Okay, well, so it was a badly drafted bill, and or or not, or it was drafted in a way to just get money out the door, and so there were these, you know, bad things. So, but they're bad. Well, why are they bad? They're not bad. They're trying to keep people employed, and the the bill didn't have any moral strictures against taking government bailout money. That was why it was offered, right? But so we go to that. It's like Ruth's Chris Steakhouse. How dare they? It's Shake Shack. How how dare they? You know, this money is only for a mom and pop restaurant. It's like why? I mean, every single person who goes to work at Shake Shack. Is it is it some risk of getting the virus? You know, I mean, so in that sense, I think we are going to move out of this because there is nobody who is not involved, and you know, um, this notion that you that people can sort of uh, escape it in their fancy, you know, in their fancy corporate suites is is preposterous and so maybe we'll have a more serious understanding uh look i'm all i i i like populism as much as the next guy you know as a as a rallying point when the populism is on my side right but nonetheless there is a silliness to this that um that over time i think will will start seeming very foolish that we, we will we will look at the people who made moves to make to change up things or a lot of us will not like healthcare workers right now but as as people who were willing to try to innovate their way out of the this do you know try to figure out a way to get the wind in the sails while we are sitting in the doldrums because if you can't then the ship just sits there and everybody dies from not being able to drink potable water right i mean so anyway, everybody, please go to commentarymagazine.com and read Yuval Levin's uh, cover story, Mirror of the Plague, uh, a great piece. Yuval, thank you so much for thank coming you. back, and we will ask you to come back again. Uh, everybody have a have a as good a weekend as you can. <laughs> for um, Abe, Christina, no, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning. <laughs>